Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking with my friend Tanya Dreher. Her name might sound familiar to you. I talked with Tanya last year on one of our very first episodes of Making Our Way. We talked about her battle with breast cancer, her son Gus's devastating diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and her quest to raise funds to help find a cure for Duchenne by climbing to base camp of Mount Everest. So today, I'm talking to her on the eve of her departure to Nepal for another trek up Everest. This is the first time that she and her team are heading back in over two years. And today, she's sharing with us more about the people of Nepal. In particular, she's talking to us about her dear friend Nirmal, who along with his wife, opens his home to boys with Duchenne in their remote village. Theirs is a beautiful story of courage, love, and selflessness. And boy, do we need more of that in this world. So let's get started. Hi, Tanya. It's good to have you here with us again today. So excited to be back, Marisa. So it's been a long pause for you from one of the things you love to do more than anything, but you are heading back to Mount Everest. And for the first time tomorrow, since... it's happening tomorrow. <laughs> You're not a little bit excited, are you? <laughs> no, so excited. Tomorrow. And, and hey, by the way, I mean, thanks for spending the eve of heading out on your trek with us and with me here so we can tell a little bit more of your story. But you are leaving your home here in the United States. You're leaving tomorrow evening to head to Nepal for your fourth trek to base camp of Mount Everest. And it's been a two and a half year hiatus. You have not been since 2019. Tell me about the preparation. Tell me about just how you're feeling. Obviously a little bit excited, but <laughs> what was the prep like this time being the first time back in a couple of years? Well, there are so many more restrictions and so many more forms and things and that you have to do now because of COVID. So it's a little bit stressful and it takes so much more time, but it's fine. Like it's worth it. And I'm almost done. You are getting there. And so you talk about the prep, but here's the thing. You're not going on vacation and this isn't just you. You're leading a team of people to not just go hang out at a beach or go to a cabin in the woods, but this is serious business. Like you have to know what you're doing to get to Nepal, first of all, and also then to safely trek to base camp. So tell me a little bit about that. Remind us of the process, what it takes for you, what it takes for your team, and what that prep looks like to get you there. Sure. Well, I am really fortunate that I have a wonderful team on the ground in Nepal. And so, and I've been working with these guys for eight years. They feel like family to me. My team in Nepal does everything in Kathmandu on that side which means like booking our flights from 
Kathmandu to the base of Everest where we start the trek. They book our hotels and everything that we need done in Kathmandu. They prep the first aid kit that we take. We talk almost every day leading up to one of these trucks and they are amazing. And on this side, mostly what I'm working on and have been working on for the last few months is sponsorships, which we have a lot of sponsors this year, which we're so excited about and donations and just raising as much money as we can before we go for the cause that we're supporting this year and also gathering the names of over 800 people on our flag this year that we're going to read at base camp. It's kind of like a divide and conquer with my Nepali team. There's so much about this trip that is interesting, fascinating, and there are ways that people can support what you're doing. So let's back up a little bit because you mentioned why you're going and what you're raising money for. So let's talk about that because it's close to both of our hearts. We both have sons with Duchenne and we have a lot of friends we've made who have sons with Duchenne and we love all our boys and we want to change things for them. So tell us about what your goal is going to base camp this year. This year we decided that we want to do a little bit more to improve the quality of life for these boys, my son, your son, all of them. And we're funding Dr. Wong's Duchenne Clinic at UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester. And it's fairly new. And we were a little bit helpful in bringing her to Massachusetts as Mm -hmm. a foundation. It's a place where families can find some kind of hope and relief. There's a whole team Every time you go, it's a two-day visit with Dr. Wong and her entire team of specialists, PT, OT, nutritionists, Mm -hmm. cardiologists, pulmonologists, endocrinologists, and it's top-notch care. They do fund research. They're working on research trials there. Yeah. And the neat thing about the clinic you're referencing, it actually was a group of parents who said, we need a great clinic. We would like a a dedicated Duchenne clinic here in the Northeast. And and it was really through parents driving this that made it happen. And so what you're doing through your trek to base camp of Everest is you are raising funds to support that clinic so that all of our kids have the option of going there, should they choose to, really good care. Now, we know there are good clinics in other parts of the country, but people in the Northeast felt a gap and a need, and you're making that happen not only for your own son, but for so many other people. So I know that there's somebody really special on your team this year. Everybody on the team is special, but there's somebody (laughs) who's extra special to you. So tell us a little bit about who signs up for this. I mean, you and I joke all the time. I'm like, Tanya, I'm not going with you. And you're like, come on, go use. You asked me to go to Mount Everest and trek to base camp. Like you're asking me to go out to dinner. Like, come on, just do it. I will (laughs) get you there. (laughs) There are people who who are like, I'm in Tanya, I'm all in. So who's on your team this year? Tell us about those brave souls. Yeah. So in the past, we have had such a wonderful variety of people on our team. Of course, it's super exciting and also just really wonderful when we have people on the team who have a child with Duchenne or a grandchild with Duchenne or a a close family friend. And we've had all of that, right? And we've also had people who really want to go to Everest and then they see that they can actually do this thing that's on their bucket list and do it for a really great cause. And those people have joined up and I've taken, I took my daughter in 2019. And this year, Gus's older brother, Abe, who is 18, is going with me for the first time. 
so excited to do this with him and to have him experience the culture and the task that we have of taking these boys' names in our backpack all the way to base camp. And he will be reading the names out loud. And I think, you know, it's hard to be a sibling of someone with Duchenne. It is hard. And from the time Abe was 18 months old, when his brother was born, he has had to deal with the fact that I have a brother, but I can't wrestle with him. I can't mm-hmm. go outside and kick the soccer ball with him. And he had to forge a relationship with him that wasn't as easy as most brothers are able to do. And he has a lot of emotions around that. And I think it's going to be amazing and emotional and just life-changing for him. I really do. I love to hear you say that because we talk about that. When you have a child with Duchenne or a child with any rare disease, a child with with, you know, a long-term illness, you know, there's a lot of things that can affect us in a parallel way to Duchenne. But we talk about that. It's not just the child who's diagnosed. The entire family is impacted. And I know that it's a special thing to carry for siblings. I'm curious, though, from your perspective, how do you feel about Abe making the commitment, saying, I want to go and do this in honor of my brother? How does that feel to you as a mom? Oh my God, just hearing you say that brings tears to my eyes. I'm so proud because I I feel like he maybe has been impacted the hardest, but he's a middle child in a family where the youngest has Duchenne and the oldest child has a clear role when their little brother has Duchenne and especially when it's a girl, right? She's been caretaking the whole time and just like that's her, that's what she does. But Abe has always wondered what his role is. And he's always been a little bit lost when it comes to the foundation and his brother and like, what's my role here? And and I'm just so proud that he's doing this. And it's his senior year of high school and he should not be taking three weeks out of school his senior year, but he's doing it. And I signed the paperwork and it's just, it's happening and it it is going to change his life. I know emotionally and intellectually for sure. Absolutely. So let's talk about the flag, because you mentioned that Abe would be helping to read the names. So tell us about the names. Tell us about this flag that you plant at base camp. We get to base camp and one of us has this really big flag in our backpack. And we have printed on there the names of over 800 people who are living with or who have passed away from Duchenne and families submit those names. We put it out on social media. We're like, we will read every single name that gets sent to us. I don't care if it's 5,000 names, we will read every single one. And we have a little ceremony. Everybody on the team participates in reading the names at base camp. And that also includes our Nepalese guides because this is the fourth time they've been with us and they are super invested in our mission and they're just, they're part of the team. And we read the names off into the wind over the rooftops of the world and just kind of sending a message and a, or a prayer of hope for these families whose kids are living with or who have passed away from this disease. And it's so emotional and people follow our journey. And we've had people say, tell us what time you're going to be at base camp. Mm-hmm. And they set their alarms and they wake up in the middle of the night and they say a prayer for us. And it's just, it's so, it's very, it's heartwarming. It's amazing. It really is. It's incredibly moving. And Tanya, you do such a special job of including people in your trek. You're so humble and you're so low-key about this, but 
You literally started this as just a devoted, dedicated parent who was grieving for the diagnosis that her little boy had, and you decided to go big. Nobody's ever done it before. Nobody's ever climbed to base camp to honor, to promote awareness, to raise money for Duchenne. And you just took this on, and you've created something that is pretty darn powerful. And I know that my own son Joseph's name is on the flag, and I, I saw a picture of the flag ready to go to base camp this year. And I saw my son's name on there, and it's hard for me to say it out loud now, but there's so many parts of a rare disease journey, any kind of a journey with a difficult illness where you feel very, very alone. It can be very lonely at times. But when you see that flag, there's this bittersweet part to it where it's gut-wrenching that there are so many boys and young men in the the ultra-rare, occasionally a girl, who's affected by Duchenne. But there's also this amazing sense of community when you see all those names on there collectively. There really is. And there was a gentleman named Chris who went with us the first time who had done many fundraisers for Hope for Gus. And we filmed him talking about that he's known Gus since he was very young, right? And so when he started the track, he's like, I'm doing this for Gus. But we get on Everest and we pull out this flag and he said, it suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks. Every single name on this flag is a Gus. Mm -hmm. It's another Uh. kid who's living with the exact same struggles and conditions. And he just, he, he was overwhelmed by it, but he hadn't really internalized it until he saw the flag and all of, started reading all of those names with us. So Tanya, I want to spend a few minutes on talking about the sense of community and where Duchenne is in the world. There are no geographical boundaries to this rare disease. And as part of the community you've created in Nepal with the Duchenne community, tell us about that, because I think it's just absolutely beautiful what you've done to reach beyond, you know, the borders of our own home, really into Nepal and to what you're doing to help. So when you're in a developing country like Nepal, our Duchenne community here is vastly different from what theirs is there, right? I mean, it's not even comparable, but I did strike up a a friendship online with a a man named Nirmal before our first trek. And he was like, Hey, I, I live outside of Kathmandu and I have Becker muscular dystrophy, which is basically like a milder form of Duchenne. He is in a wheelchair now in his, in his late forties, but I started talking with him and he and his wife and his son had actually opened up their home to boys with Duchenne who lived in these remote villages in Nepal. Right. And he did that because there are no support systems in Nepal. So if your child is born with Duchenne and you live anywhere outside of Kathmandu, they can't go to school because in the villages you have to walk. It's basically like walking a hiking trail, right? To get to the school. Sure. They really can't go anywhere because they don't have wheelchairs. Their parents will carry them on their backs But these Nepalese moms, they're like so teeny tiny and you see them with their piggybacking their boys and it's so you can't go far. Like maybe they take them to the toilet, right? These boys stop walking very young. And when they're little, it's no big deal to piggyback them. But then they grow into young men. 
And usually these young men are are bigger than their mothers. And it's almost always the mother because the dad is off working or he's in the fields or he's, you know, maybe he went to Malaysia to make money. And so they literally bend down in front of their son who maybe weighs a minimum of a hundred pounds, but probably more. And they wrap their arms around their neck and the boys can't hold on. As you know, there's no muscle strength. So they're holding their arms around their neck and then they stand up and the boys can't put their legs around their waist the way a toddler does when you piggyback them. Right. And that you can't, the mom can't grab their legs because she's holding the arms. So she's completely hunched over so that he doesn't fall off her back and she's holding his arms and she's walking and his body is just hanging there. And because he has no muscle tone, it feels twice as heavy as a hundred pounds. It's like carrying a a sack of potatoes, but they do this. These mothers do this because as you know, we will do anything for our boys, (sighs) but they can't take them to school. It's too far. Mm -hmm. It's too much. And there's no law in Nepal about going to school. So they stay at home and they don't move all day and they're very isolated. So this gentleman, Nirmal, decided to open up his home to as many of these boys as he could so that they could be together and not isolated, right? So they would sometimes go home for the weekend. Their parents would hire a Jeep to come and get them. When I visited him in 2015, I think he had six boys in his home with his wife and his son. And he would do art classes with them and he would bring in a physical therapist, not that often, but maybe like a couple times a year, but at least, you know, it's better It's better than nothing. You know, our mm-hmm. boys get stretched. They should get stretched every single day, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have medications. They're not on steroids. So they lose their mobility a, a lot earlier, but they're together and they were so happy. They would listen to music and they would eat together and they all slept together on this massive bed in one room. It looked like summer camp, right? His wife and his son are the ones carrying these boys to the bathroom or from one room to the other. When we left there, the team and I were talking and we agreed collectively that we would give a percentage of everything, all the money we had raised that year to this boy's home. And we thought that it was just going to be like a one and done, right? But lo and behold, we're going for our fourth time. Every time we go to Everest, we give them a percentage to help with expenses and equipment and medication if it's available. During COVID, all the boys had to go back to their villages. They could mm-hmm. not stay in the home with their mall and they had to go back to their villages and everybody was isolating. And so we did support them financially for food and fuel and clothes for each of these families back in the village. And so that felt really good too. What small amount of money for us goes so far Mm -hmm. in Nepal. It's so striking to hear you describe this because part of the work that we do here at Team Joseph is we help families here in the United States with things that they need. So it's we help families build ramps to get in and out of their homes. We help pay for wheelchairs and leg braces, and we help people get handicap accessible vans and to modify their homes. And And we were incensed, we're outraged at the lack of our country, our, our government, our medical system, our healthcare providers providing our boys here with what they need. And rightfully so, in a, a first world country, we expect those things. And my goodness, it should be the standard of care, I think, across the world. But what strikes me is that 
when you talk about your dear friend, Nirmal, he is himself in a wheelchair. He and his wife have taken in many more boys who who have extensive needs. And what you have described for us today is it's it's a house filled with joy. And there's such a contrast there between what they have and what they don't have. How does that strike you when you're there? I hate to say this when we're battling a rare catastrophic disease, but do you ever just feel lucky about where you live? I had never once in my life felt lucky that my kid had Duchenne until I visited this home. And I mean, I didn't feel lucky that he had Duchenne, but I felt lucky that we live where we do. And I mean, usually I'm so ticked off that my son has to take so many medications and it's just like, it's so stressful and it's so sad. But I found myself being so thankful for the 20 different pills he has to take every day. You know, I found myself so thankful for the wheelchair that he has, which when that wheelchair was delivered, I hated it because it was such a symbol of what was happening to my kid, right? But I am so thankful for it. He can go almost anywhere in that and he's got independence. I agree. You're so lucky. I agree. I agree. And and you're right. It's not, I'm never grateful that we have Duchenne in our lives, but if I have to have it in my life, I'm grateful I'm here. I visualize you going from the United States, a first world country to a developing country, what a lot of people would still call a third world country, and learning about their lives and offering your help. And I think that oftentimes that is our perspective is, well, they need my help. And they do. And there's so much good that you're doing there. And that's really important. I'm curious what you learn from them and what they offer to you. What do you take away from there when you leave? You know, it's kind of a mixture of sadness and also incredible perspective because they are so in the moment. Like we are constantly Mm. running from doctor's appointments to therapy, to the pharmacy, to, I mean, who knows? It's just constant. And I'm thankful that we have those things, but they're just in the moment. Like they are all sitting together, painting or laughing. We we brought them a bunch of iPads one time and um, it was they were their first time being on the internet. And oh, it was so fun to watch. And it's just so simple. And here our kids are like on the internet, like how many hours a day, mm-hmm. and just like gaming or doing whatever. But these guys were like discovering, looking at pictures of places around the world they'd never seen before, you know, mm-hmm. and they were so joyful and thankful. And it just changed me in a way, like we are so lucky mm-hmm. and I am grateful for what we have here and we need to pay it forward. Yeah, absolutely. So Tanya, we couldn't we couldn't do this talk today without acknowledging the horrors of what is going on in the world in Ukraine. And I'm just struck as we talk about this, thinking about all the images of mothers collectively in shelters, taking care of their their babies and their children, leaving husbands and, and brothers and older sons. And really just having to take on this role of protector for the basics. And I think sometimes the world feels a little bit hopeless, like we're divided, we don't have anything in common. But when I think about what you do, what you see in Nepal and how you just, you reach out with love and compassion and with admiration to Nirmal and his family, 
when I think about the images we're seeing right now coming out of Ukraine and the suffering, but also the resilience, do you think that we really do have a lot in common as just humans? Do you think there's hope for us that there is unity that's possible? I think so, yes. But I, it, isn't it sad that it takes these tragedies for us to come together? That's mm-hmm. what strikes me. People from all over the world are reaching out. And even into the, the families that have Duchenne in the Ukraine, people from our community mm-hmm. here in the Western world are, are reaching out and doing as much as they can to help them. Because if you have to flee a city because of a war and you have a child who can't walk, mm-hmm. how do you do that? And so the perspective that we get just from listening to those stories and, and feeling those parents' pain and terror at how can I protect my child. Correct. Yeah, I agree. And I would never compare Duchenne to an attack on a country. Absolutely not. No, no. To a war. But there is an instinct as a parent, but especially as a mom, to your babies, your young. And I think that's what that's what we're all motivated to do. And there's a lot of beauty in that, in the human condition, a lot of suffering and a lot of struggle, but my goodness, a lot of beauty that we see out of people. You have documented some of these amazing and beautiful moments. Tell us a little bit about the documentary film that you've created. Yeah. So our first Everest to Endushan in 2015 we brought a dear friend of mine who I met when I lived in Wales, who has his own filmmaking and photography company. And he volunteered his services and came with us as part of the team. And he made a beautiful mini documentary that has not been released yet. We had it in DVD form. It made the film circuit and we won some awards with it. And we've decided now with this fourth Everest to Endushen that we're releasing it for public view. And it's just, it documents our journey in the most incredible way. Even though that was our first trip, it very much mirrors every trip we've been. It shows mm-hmm. part of the climb. It shows the flight to the base of Everest. It shows us reading the names. It interviews each team member about how this experience has impacted them. And I'm so excited to to share it. I know it's I know it's been a work in progress for a while. I can't wait to watch it in its entirety. So you talked about documenting the arrival and the climb. From the time you start trekking, it's going to take you approximately, give or take, it takes nine days to get to base camp. Tell me what that takes for you physically, absolutely, but also mentally and emotionally. Sure. Well, there are always days where I feel like I'm not sure if I can do this. but I just do it because if it wasn't for Gus, I think I would just like when I got tired or felt kind of sick, whatever, I would just turn around because why not? Right. But when you're doing this for your kid, even if your kid doesn't have Duchenne, when you're doing something for your child, you just go 110%. Right. And so that's what keeps me going is my son, but also everybody's son who's out there with Duchenne and it is so empowering and as I've said before I'm not any kind of an athlete and so I don't think I would be able to do this without all those boys on my mind and in my heart and that's what pushes me forward Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so how tough is it physically I mean I don't know (laughs) see you're you're way too humble I want to hear about it's like 
Marisa, it's like childbirth. It's like you do it and it's awful and then you forget how hard it was and then you go back. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not awful. It's not awful. It's because the whole way you're encountering these amazing Nepalese people and the views are incredible of the Himalayas. And so that helps, you know, push you along. We're not doing any kind of like ice pit climbing or anything. It's a long trek, a long hike. But we just rest a lot. And there's some places near base camp where we scramble over rocks and we just do it. And my guides are always like trying to hold my hand because I'm an old lady. And they're like, oh, my God, you don't fall. And I haven't fallen. But <laughs> we just do it together. And however yeah. long it takes us is how long it takes us. And our, our goal is to get to, to base camp and read those names. And if we have to crawl there, that's what we do. Absolutely. How many feet, Tanya, how high is base camp? Base camp is almost 18,000 feet. Okay. So it's up there. It's a big climb. I love how humble you are, but it's a big climb. It's a big trek. Absolutely. (laughs) We've been talking about the preparation, about how you conceived of this idea all on your own seven years ago. We talked about the meaning for your family, for, of course, Gus, who has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Abe, who is going to honor his little brother. You've made the emotional part of this trip, how you help the Duchenne families in Nepal. Tanya, how has this changed you? I can't even imagine what my life would be like right now if I didn't have this connection to Mount Everest and Nepal and all of these families who trust me to take the names of their boys there like I don't know who I would be right now because it's become such a huge part of me like this is our number one fundraiser for the Hope for Gus Foundation like we do very few other fundraisers now because it's a lot of work it's always successful Mm -hmm. and it is just where my heart is I'm always thinking about the next time we go and you know what can we fund and who can we help? Can we bring a thousand names? And I'm passionate about bringing the community together on this flag and following us on social media. And it, it just feels so, you know, it's not about me. It's not about my kid. It's about all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you do that so beautifully. You do it so incredibly well. So when we talk about your track, talk about Nepal and the families you know there, We talk about our own sons and the battles that they wage every single day. What's your message to the world, Tanya? What do you want people to know mostly? Marisa, when I tell people or when people ask about Everest and Duchenne, sometimes it's almost a little embarrassing because it feels like a humble brag. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I go to Everest. It's not. I don't even like to talk about it too much because I don't want to sound obnoxious and to most people Everest is this thing out there that might be on their bucket list or like but I wish I could somehow tell people about it without them thinking I'm I'm some kind of a hero for doing it because I'm not we all do whatever it takes for our kids and it's not just for my kid I do this for the community and our foundation part of our mission is we're stronger together Here's what I want the world to know about you. You are the epitome of your actions speak for themselves. You are, again, you're so low key. You're so matter of fact about this. Like you're literally going a world away, landing at Lukla, which is one of the most dangerous airports in the world on the side of a mountain. You lead a team, 
you make it to base camp almost 18,000 feet up. And I, and I ask you, how hard is it? And you're like, it's not really that hard. And I love you for that. I'll be thinking about you guys and I'll be pulling for you, praying for the best of weather, good health for everybody. So we're, of course, going to put a link in the notes. But Tanya, just tell us right now, let's just be shameless about this. Where can people go if they want to donate to what you're doing? So we have a specific website for for Everest and it's just everesttoenduchen.org. And there's a massive support our trek button. Yep. So you can go there to read more about Tanya and her team, but also to donate. Should you feel compelled to do so, I encourage people to do it because I take my Joseph to this clinic. There are many good clinics around the country, but this is a passion for you, Tanya. I'm so proud to support you in what you're doing. I'm just glad I get to call you friend and I love you and I'm going to be watching from afar. You're going to be amazing. Thank you, Marista. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it. And be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org. Thank you.